Hello, and welcome to On the Marie Curie Couch, the podcast that aims to break down taboos and start open, honest conversations about death and dying. I'm Jason Davidson. I'm a social worker by profession, and I've worked in palliative care, hospice care, and bereavement support services for more than a decade. Each episode, we'll be speaking to a well-known guest to find out about how they feel about their own mortality and how their personal experience of bereavement has shaped the way they live their life. Today, I'm on the Marie Curie couch with Carrie Ad Lloyd. Carrie Ad hosts Griefcast, an award-winning podcast in which she talks to well-known people about their experiences of grief. You might also have seen her as a panelist on QI, acting in Peep Show or Toast of London, or heard her in a range of programmes across Radio 4. Her first book, You Are Not Alone, is out now and chronicles the grief lessons she's learnt along the way, plus those of some of her celebrity guests over the years. Carrie Adeloid, welcome to the Marie Curie Couch. Thank you for having me. It's very comfortable. <laughs> <laughs> You're welcome. How are you? Um, yeah, I'm okay today. Uh, the book that I've written came out last week as we were recording this. Uh, and so it's been very busy and lots of talking about grief and things, which is uh, fine. But obviously, you know, you have to sort of manage your own mental health as well. So yeah, I've, uh, I've had a nice weekend of just children screaming at me which makes a nice change from the other stuff so, <laughs> that's nice nice to have that. that change is important though isn't it it is it definitely is yeah it definitely helps ground you back to reality when two children just refuse to do anything you ask I find that really if anyone wants to come around and have that experience for free as therapy <laughs> welcome <laughs> to come and feel how that how that feels so yeah no I'm all right today thank you Jason Good, good. And we're going to be talking more about death and dying and grief today. And can I start, Carrier, by asking if you've experienced a significant bereavement in your life that you can talk to us about today? Yeah, yeah. So my dad died when I was 15 of um, pancreatic cancer. He was diagnosed in the February of 1998 and he was dead by the April of 1998. So it's very quick. Um, so quick. In fact, we didn't you know, we didn't even get to sort of having people help us, particularly charity, because it was it was like, oh, he's got cancer. Oh, he's died. So it was it was um it was a real fast road. And then since then, I've had quite a few significant deaths. I'm sort of someone who's who's had it in their life, and it's been quite a presence from a very young age. So six months after my dad died, my grandfather died, who was his father, who I was very close to. And then also after that, my husband, uh, who I've known for a very long time, he has also lost his dad first and then his mum. So yeah, there's been a lot, a lot of grief and funerals and talking about death and dying in this house. So we're very open to talking about it in this house because um, it's been very present. So it sounds like there was a really short period in between your dad's diagnosis and his death. Was there any opportunity for any conversations about death and dying with the family then? Not really. It was very quick. So he was 44 and um, people really hate hearing this side of it because he was really healthy. <laughs> so he ran marathons, he ran triathlons and he was training for an Ironman. So he was like extremely healthy person, very fit, I suppose. And they actually said that like his metabolism was so fast, that was part of the problem. If he'd been older, the cancer might have been slower, but he just, he was just 
going very fast. Um, and so he went yellow. That's what happened first of all. It, it spread to the liver. So the first thing we knew of anything wrong was he went yellow and he went into hospital and they thought he had jaundice and then they started, oh, maybe it's liver cancer. And then when they did some investigations, it was like, oh, it's actually secondary liver. It's in his pancreas, which is, you know, still very, very hard to get any positive outcomes with. Um, but even back then it was it was particularly bad. And so, yeah, there really wasn't a lot of conversation. They, He had chemotherapy which my mum and me now think we wish, kind of wish he hadn't have had it in a way because it, it was too far gone. But he was very of the kind of positive, let's try mindset, which, you know, fair enough. Um, so he had chemotherapy and it was all kind of done in a kind of like, oh, we're all doing this to get better. And then he deteriorated very rapidly. And so I think by then we all realised, oh, you know, there isn't a cure. This isn't about curing, this is palliative. And um, I say on my podcast, the grief cast, a lot. The reason I'm so, um, what's the word, sort of um, zealous about people talking about death and dying is he didn't. So he refused to talk about it. He kept saying, I'm fine, I'm going to be fine. And he wouldn't plan any funeral and he wouldn't talk to us about anything. So it was really hard um, for us, obviously hard for him. Like, I realised it was hard for him. But yeah, it was very hard for my mum and my brother and me because we just couldn't get any conversation. So we didn't have any kind of Hollywood moment where he said, hey, I'm dying and this is what I think at all, at all. So yeah, it was really afterwards. The sort of reason I do the grief cast, the reason I've written this book is that we didn't have, I guess, a particularly positive, peaceful death experience. His actual death was peaceful, but um, in terms of talking about it, it, it wasn't very positive. So that's why I've now become someone who <laughs> thinks it's really important. And you were 15. Mm. I mean, what was your understanding of those words like palliative and metastases and cancer? And Yeah, I had no, I had no answer. I mean, I say this, I work a lot now with PCUK, who are an amazing charity that help people with pancreatic cancer. I, they really are brilliant. And, you know, I didn't even know what the pancreas was when they said it. I was like, what's a pancreas? You know, I vaguely heard it in my biology GCSE, but I didn't really know what it did. And it didn't sound important to kill you. Like, it wasn't like lungs or liver or something. So I didn't really know what the pancreas was. I kind of knew cancer was bad, but I didn't know it could, yeah, you could die that quickly from it. And... As I said, he went yellow. So it was such a sort of physical, visual thing of like, he looked very ill. And he went from, like I said, being this like super like running, cycling to like, he can't get up, he's throwing up all the time. So you really did see someone physically deteriorate. But yeah, the words didn't really mean anything to me. And we tried to get him into a hospice, but he actually got too sick. So he ended up dying in a hospital on a cancer ward. And they were lovely. They were very, very brilliant and dealt with it very well but um that's how fast it was it was even as we were planning okay he really needs to go to hospice like it was like oh he's too sick to be moved so it moved so quickly there wasn't really time to ask questions or especially when you're a teenager grown-ups are saying things you know grown-ups are like oh this and that and the chemo and this and you just kind of stand there thinking mm, okay I don't really know what's going on but I'm gonna like try and pick up the gist of it's not great <laughs> I I get the gist it's not great that's kind of what I got so yeah you I think people forget how confusing it is when you are a young person in that situation you really don't know what's going on was there anybody you recall in particular whether that was a health professional or a neighbor a family a friend who sat with you tried to give you the opportunity to ask questions give you some information 
Not really. <laughs> my mum, my mum definitely, she really tried. But obviously she was dealing mm. with it as well. The absolute, yeah. oh, her husband of, you know, 20 plus years is dying. So she tried to explain it. And I remember that one of the strongest memories I have is the day before he died. So we were going in to see him every day. And the day before he died, I asked my mum if I could have a day off. I said, I don't want to go in. So just needed a break and she had to say to me you have to come in and I was like oh okay <laughs> like, she said it in a way that I was like oh we better not ask any more questions that sounds quite serious because she knew it was probably gonna and he actually died we were with him all that night and then he died in the morning so she was kind of like you kind of it's not a day off situation it's a you have to be there so she would try definitely but um no, I, I think because it was so quick, I think if we'd got to the hospice, there might have been more of an opportunity for like, right now we're preparing for dying. But it really was, he sort of took a turn for the worst, ended up in hospital and then no one could move him from there because he was so sick. So then I think everyone realised, oh, he's going to die here. Um, and there just wasn't, there just wasn't time. So yeah, nobody really. And I would counteract that as well. Like 1998 was a very different space. And all the amazing charities now like um, Child Bereavement UK and Winston's Wish and Grief Encounter, like they all kind of formed after I'd had this experience. So yeah, I think we have got better at helping children. And definitely at that point, there really wasn't much going on. Is it okay to ask what it was like at the bedside? Yeah, yeah. It was... Um... Oh, it was hard. It was really hard, but it was very nice. I felt very glad that we were there and we were very much um, a unit, you know, like a fam like we were just, he was on the bed. He had his own room and it had these nice French doors opening out to a bit of a grotty <laughs> garden. Um, but it was a garden, you know, there was, it was open air and there were some plants there and it was a, um, it wasn't like a, a main road or something. And um yeah, we were all with him. We just slept with him. Like me, we slept on the floor all night. And then in the morning, he finally kind of gave up because he really didn't want to. He fought it so hard because he was, you know, like this, a very much a live person, you know. And he's young. And I think when people are young and struggling with cancer, it's, it is, I don't, it's not a battle. Like it, that's an unhelpful phrase, I think. But, um, it was a fight with him and I don't think I would never say oh he lost the battle or cancer won but he definitely fought it he fought that his body was giving up I think his brain wasn't keen on that <laughs> basically um so yeah we were all with him in the morning and it's it's kind of a blur and I do say that to people on my podcast all the time like it's okay that it's a blur like your brain lets you have what you can handle and so I do remember being there like but I don't like I don't remember leaving I don't remember how like when other people came in I just remember I do obviously remember the moment he died but I felt very I felt very glad that we were all there and that I was old enough to kind of at least understand that part of it um and be with him and say goodbye and stuff like that I think it's so helpful isn't it for people listening you know to hear those stories they're not easy to tell and thank you and of course every situation is different for everybody and every death is different um but you know I think for those who might be listening now who are caring for somebody with a terminal illness and or are grieving bereaved like you said have had that experience but it's all a bit of a blur and I like that thing about your brain only gives you what you can kind of handle 
So there was limited conversations, limited time for conversations around any practical things like planning and funerals. And so how was that process afterwards? Are you okay to talk a bit about that? Oh, yeah, it was hard. I mean, and I feel bad because I've seen mostly my mum dealt with all this. <laughs> like, and I have an older brother. So really, I was like the bottom of the chain of people having to actually do like admin at that point. Um I've since been, as I've been older and experienced more death, been like sort of seen, they're like, oh my God, there's all this stuff. And I definitely felt like, oh, when I was 15, I just, I didn't have to deal with anything, which I'm very glad about. Um, So when it came to funeral, yeah, my mum planned it all and she'd managed to get like a couple of things out of him, like that he'd said, like, honestly, it was like blood from a stone, like a couple of things he'd said, I wouldn't want that. And um, we're not, they're not particularly religious, but there was a church that we'd gone to in the city of London that my grandfather had been very associated with. So we all kind of knew we were going to have a big service there. And because he was 44, obviously, as you know, if you go to funerals, the younger they are, the busier they are um, most of the time. So it was absolutely rammed. And then we had this big funeral service in the city and then he was cremated in a much smaller service. And funny enough, when I was doing the grief cast, I used to talk about the funeral quite a lot because I remember the funeral. It was quite showy and like, you know, big church and, you know, this like lots of people speaking and singing. And then someone asked me, you know, oh, was he then buried? And I was like, no, no, he was cremated. And um, and I was like, oh, absolutely no memory of it. Like complete, utter blank of what happened after we left the funeral. I remember getting on a coach with everybody and nothing else. And then when I came to write the book, you are not alone, which I write about lots of things I've learned through the grief cast, but also my own bereavement and grieving memories. I had to remember it. I had to like go into my brain and literally ask permission and be like, brain, please give me that memory. And my brain was like, really? You really want this? Are you sure? <laughs> and I was like, yeah, I need to write about it because I need to remember. And then when I did, it was so sad and so painful. And I was like, oh, that was that was the real goodbye was the crematorium. Um, and the funeral was a bit more, I think, especially when you're young. And again, it's been so quick, you know, everybody's just, it almost was a bit of a party vibe and everyone was talking and nice to see, you know, everyone's having a nice time because it's nice to see people. And everyone kept saying, oh, he would have loved this. Oh, he would have loved this. <laughs> it was like, he would have, he would have definitely enjoyed that part. Um, so yeah, we had some, some nice things and we played his favorite Frank Zappa song. That gives you a pretty indication of the kind of guy he was. An instrumental piece of Frank Zappa music that was played very loudly in this beautiful city of London church. So it was that was kind of like the two sides of him. Um, so the funeral itself was, yeah, was fairly lovely. But the crematorium was, I mean, I don't probably can't swear on this, but it was awful, I would say. What's your dad's name? Peter. 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 Okay. Okay. Um, so should we talk about grief? Yeah, sure. And, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm interested in hearing about your experience of grief and what's helped you. I think that's helpful for listeners. Yeah. But also maybe some of what you've learned mm. through your podcast, you know, and talking to others. Yeah, well, I think the main thing I'd say, so I'm 20 plus years now. I've, I've got a bit vague. After 20, I was like, it's just 20 plus. <laughs> it's a long time ago. So what has helped me has changed. And that's a big thing I always say on the show is that grief is a completely unique experience. It's complete, you know, my brother and I have grieved completely differently. I think that's a really good example of like raised by the same man in the same house. You know, we were living at that house at the same time and yet we've grieved completely differently. So it's, I think it's always important to remember like it, your grief won't look like anybody else's. And what I've needed has changed as I've got older and this has evolved as I've evolved. 
And um, that took me a long time to get my head around because I think when I when you get your grief, when it's almost like given to you, here's your grief. It's so solid and real and raw and almost tangible that you can't imagine it changing. You're like, it'll always be like this. It'll always be this awful and this painful. And then as you go on and you live, and it's not to say time heals, that's not what I'm saying, but it's like your life grows around this very painful experience. And then the very painful experience starts to change in relation to your age, especially if you're young. You know, obviously I looked at the grief very differently to 25, to 15, to 35, to 15, because, you you know, you've changed. You've changed the way you've seen the world. So, um... I think that's one thing I found really helpful to let it change, to accept. It doesn't have to stay the same. And that's not a betrayal of the person. Because I think for ages, I was like, no, keep it as it was, because that's who he knew. And that's who I was. And to kind of allow myself to go, it's okay, you're allowed to grow, you're allowed to change. It doesn't mean you've like let them down by growing up, especially for young bereaved people. I think that's quite a big thing that isn't talked about that much of like, there's a part of us that we're kind of preserving because that's who they knew. And even though very logically in your brain, you're like, well, it doesn't matter. They're not coming back. Why do I need to preserve this? There's another part of you that's like, because they might, because <laughs> I need to make sure this piece stays so I remember them. Um, so yeah, that was a big thing for me of just letting myself change. And then also therapy. I am a big believer in therapy but I will always say I didn't have therapy till I was in my mid-30s so I always say to people like there's no rush (laughs) like you know I think by all means get someone for the immediate aftermath my family were very much helped by crews they both my mum and my brother had like immediate bereavement counselling kind of like a six-week session to kind of just help you through that storm of the first year I didn't because I was too young to get anything that sort of counted as bereavement counseling um but yeah I waited that long which again is very common with young grievers and again I would say to people like don't feel bad if it takes you ages or you've like put it to the side for a long time and not really thought about it and lived your life and then you think oh god maybe I should start talking to someone about this like it's okay whenever you're ready whenever your grief waits it waits for you so you don't need to be right I've met some people like well, I need to get my therapy booked and my counseling booked and they died two months ago and I'm like take your time <laughs> like plenty of time to talk about this you know and that's the other thing I think I've learned from talking to people is that I always feel bad when I say this because it sounds a bit depressing, but it's a lifelong experience. And what I mean by that is it never goes away. But what I also mean by that is it changes. So I don't wake up every day feeling like I did when I was 15. I don't wake up every day in tears, can't get out of bed. You know, I don't have a picture of my dad that I'm weeping about. Like, But every day if someone says to me, oh, is that a sad thing that happened to you? I would say, oh yeah, it was. I've learned to live with it and I've learned to carry it and I've grown my life around it. But it will never stop being something that is sad. And when I let that be true, it really helped my heart. It really helped me to just let it be a part of the world, part of the world that I'm living in, rather than being like, when can I get rid of it? When's the grief going to go? How many years do I have to wait before it just disappears and I feel fine? And now I'm like, you're never going to be fine, but you you will be fine in that there's also grief in your life, but you haven't perfectly, you know, there's days when I don't think about it and there's days when I do. And I try now to just let that be okay. And most of my listeners have said the same thing. I mean, honestly, nearly 200 episodes, I think there's like one person who said, oh, I don't think about it and it, I'm, I'm fine. I, it's part of the past. Everybody else has said, yeah, I still think about it and I still miss them. And some days it's easy, some days it's not, but you learn how to cope with that. 
And that's the benefit of being in this club for a long time is when I do have a sad day, I know I'm like, okay, here comes a sad day. I know what I need to do. I need to make sure like, you know, have a good cup of tea with somebody or I have a sit down. I'm not rushing around and make sure that I'm checking in with myself and I'm not too tight. You know, all of that stuff that you can kind of go, oh, here comes a grief day. What do we have to do? Whereas I think at the beginning, you're like, oh my God, here comes a grief day. Like, what is this? This is, what, what do I do? You just get better at handling it. Some of life's questions are harder than others. If you or a loved one are facing end of life or bereavement, Marie Curie is here to listen and help. Call our free support line on 0800 090 2309 or start a web chat by visiting mariecurie.org.uk forward slash support. There are so many key messages in everything you've just said, you know, so thank you for that, because I think that's going to be really helpful to people who are listening and grieving. I think what I'd also like to add to that is that, um, you know, counselling and therapy is not necessarily needed for everybody. Oh, yes. Sorry, and, I should say uh, that. No, yeah, no, no, definitely. No. Not for everyone. Yeah, not for everyone. And, and, and you know, there's so much benefit in storytelling yeah. and being around others who knew the individual. Yes. And that kind of reminiscing and storytelling. Mm telling can be really helpful as well can't it for people um but I think also you know as you've said counseling and therapy can also be another help and another support I was interested in just whether you could say a bit about this um and that's about oscillation because I was listening to your episode yesterday with Ramesh Ranganathan oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. and you were talking about that strobe and shoots of their bereavement researchers and you know they've got this kind of oscillation model and I just thought that was a really helpful key thing to be able to say and I wonder whether you could just talk a bit about what you learned from that oh yeah this is my absolute favorite this <laughs> is like this was a big game changer for me so in the book I write about the five stages and how I'm, I'm not a fan of the five stages I think it's very unhelpful old-fashioned out of date but park that you can read the book and find out why I think that um but the, when I was researching five stages and discovering all this stuff about how unhelpful it was I thought well well, what now? What are, we, what are we all agreeing on now? And I came across dual process method by Strober and Schutt. So those are lots of big fancy words. Don't let that put you off. But basically, these brilliant people studied people who were actually grieving and said what they realized was that they would seem to be in two states. So there was the state of kind of full grief. And I call that, you know, when you're like, you're snotting, you're crying, you're on the floor, like you make a funny noise that sounds like a goose because you're crying so much, like full, full grief. And then there's the other bit where you're kind of, you know, you're watching a soap opera or you're chatting to friends or you're just shopping and you sort of, you're almost not thinking about it. And in the first year, you just jump between those two states. You oscillate between them all the like quite quickly. So one minute you're crying, next minute you're fine. And it, it's like every five minutes it feels. And as the time goes on, you kind of oscillate between them a bit easier. So it gets a bit like less of a violent switch between them both. But what I notice from talking to my listeners and my guests is everyone feels bad about what's called the restoration activities. So, you know, watching telly, forgetting about it. We all feel guilty. We all think, oh, I wasn't thinking about them. I'm not really grieving properly. I'm not like doing the grieving. And what Strober and Schutze 
which is so brilliant, they say that is grieving. Grieving is doing the crying and then not doing the crying and forgetting about the crying. And actually, we don't need to feel guilty about not doing the crying. That is where your brain has a break, has a cup of tea. And in the background, while you think you're not thinking about it, your brain is very slowly processing, okay, this person's not here. I'm not going to see them again. But you can't constantly weep about something. Like, you run out of tears, you need the loo. Like, that's just fundamental what it is to be human. And when I read this, I just felt this, like, honestly, this lift off my shoulders of, like, oh, I see. Because for all these years, I'd felt really guilty about how I'd grieved as a teenager. And I thought I'd done it a bit wrong. And I was like, oh, it's not wrong. There's no right way to grieve. You just, you go from the crying to the not crying, back and forth, back and forth. Everyone does it differently, as in what your restoration activities are may look different might be playing golf or going fishing or just having a walk with a friend or, you know, watching Netflix for six hours. Like whatever it is you need to have a break from the grieving. And what's important is you don't stay in one state too much. So obviously you don't want to only be not thinking about it. Like that's not great. And it's also not great to only be weeping. It's about making sure like, okay, I'm giving space for it when it comes up. But when it doesn't come up, I'm not beating myself up about it and thinking, oh, I've done it wrong. And honestly, Jason, when I read that, I just thought, that's what grief looks like. That's what it actually really looks like for most people. And there we are feeling so guilty about it because we think it's wrong and it doesn't look like what we grew up with thinking grief looks like. And most of this is all inherited from Victorians, from the five stages, from out-of-date practices. And just as you don't eat food from Victorian era and you don't eat food from 1969 when the five stages was invented, you eat fresh food. This is a fresh theory. (laughs) Go to your fridge and get some fresh theories. This is a much more helpful, kind way of thinking about it. So yeah, and everyone I've told to, my guests, when I say that, they go, oh yeah, that's how I felt. I kind of felt like I was jumping between these two states. And so yeah, I just think, oh, it's just a lovely, eat it up. That's my faith. That's my faith theory. Yeah, I agree with you as well. It's a really, really helpful one. And I think lots of people I've spoken to who've been grieving and in my own experience as well, you know, personally, um, it makes a lot of sense. Mm, Makes so much sense. It reflects back what you see people do rather than Mm. what what you think someone should do. It's like, oh yeah, that is what I've seen everyone when they grieve. That's what they look like. And that, you know, the thing about just allowing yourself to laugh and mm-hmm. or have fun and or be sidetracked and yeah. or be doing everyday to day things that you know we would normally do it doesn't mean you're a bad person because you're laughing like that's what i think's heartbreaking that people feel so guilty for yeah. laughing or being out with friends or doing something fun for themselves and they think oh i, mu- I mustn't do that i shouldn't be people will think i'm not grieving no i didn't care no it, it, that is what grief looks like mm. Slight change of question. Carrie, can I ask, do you ever think about your own death? Oh, that's a good question. Yes, I do. I have death anxiety, which is quite common in teenage grievers. Because if you have any kind of traumatic loss, obviously you panic a bit that it's going to happen again. So I've grown up with this. um, I didn't know it's called death anxiety until I met someone who also had it and said, oh, well, this is what I call it. So I do think about my own death a lot. And then I worked with an amazing, 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 amazing palliative care nurse called Kimberly St. John. Um, When I started the grief cast, she worked at Guy's and St. Thomas's and she was changing the way death was being talked about. She was talking about advanced care planning. She was getting people to think about their deaths in this really beautiful way. And I did a grief cast live for her and I did an event for her and we stayed in touch. And in 2020, um, she passed away very suddenly. 
And I write about her in the book because she had an advanced care plan worked out and, you know, she had everything. And she always said to me, like, she was a, just the most beautiful, wonderful person. And she was also Welsh. And she said, Callie, you know, people don't want to talk about it, but you've got to talk about it now before it's too late, you know, before you are on drugs and you are in pain. And so she really actually, much more than my dad's death, because I think my dad's death scared me so much, I kind of ran away from thinking about it. She really made me realize that you could think about it in a really calm way, in the same way that you might think, what music do I want at my funeral? Which is a very easy question. Oh, I don't want that song. Oh my God, don't play, don't play that. <laughs> like, I say I like it, but I don't want, actually want that at my funeral. Um, she made me think you could start thinking about advanced care planning in that way of like, you know, if something happens to me in a vegetative state, like what do I want my loved ones to do? And yeah, I really credit all of that calmness to her because she just showed me that you don't have to panic about it. It can be this very calm thing in the way that you might think where do I want to go on holiday uh before you know before I die what country do I want to make sure I go to or haven't seen or what person do I want to make sure I don't you know stay in contact with and and how do I want my death to look and she was incredible I really really yeah can't speak highly enough of Kim and I think some of those practical things can be a good way into that conversation yes so you know talking about funeral planning or songs or music and um, writing a will yes and yeah. you know I think kind of for people to sort of think about their financial affairs and what might happen when they die one of the reasons we have this conversation on this podcast about thinking about death and dying and do we think about it in a practical sense as well is for those very reasons you've just described you know advanced care planning or just planning in advance um and there's lots of talk out there isn't there about the kind of planning that goes into birth um but actually you know we don't do the same planning when we think about death and I think that goes back to um you know what you were just saying Kimberly St John said is that people don't want to talk about it yeah and um or are scared of talking about it or sometimes I think there's a fear that if you talk about it you'll bring it on Oh, that is so common. Like the the fates will hear you, you know, like no one admits it, but that's what everyone's thinking. (laughs) Like, Well, I better not say it in case somebody upstairs or somehow the world, the universe is like, oh, you're talking about death. Oh, okay. Well, here you go. I know it's fear. So much of it is fear. And what Kim really showed me was like the way to deal with that fear isn't to, you know, panic and run away from it and ignore it in the same way that when you fear your own grief, the way to deal with it is to breathe really calm, get yourself centered and look at it and be like, okay, what do I actually need to do? Like you said, and you can start with plan your music, tell people if you want to be cremated or buried. Like having interviewed so many guests, I can tell you for fact, the guests that had a plan had an easier time after the death. The guests that were like, oh, we went to the draw, everything was set, she'd already rung the vicar, she'd already chosen the songs and the readings, everyone knew what they were doing. They had an easier time. Now, that doesn't mean they didn't grieve, but it means that that like six months after someone died was like, I don't know, 10% easier. It was just 10% easier because they didn't have to worry or have we made the right decision? They didn't have to have arguments because I know that's happened with other families of like, no, he didn't say that, he did say that. And the ones without a plan were left lost after a grief and they're in grief which is chaos and then they're like oh god what did they say can you remember can anyone remember (laughs) and the amount of times you know you may think something about someone you check in with them you're not religious yes I am what oh I thought you were (laughs) you need to check this stuff out because 
because we don't talk about it we just don't don't fully know and I always say to people 10% doesn't sound like much but if you love someone do you want them to find life 10% easier after you're gone or 10% harder if you love them you want it to be 10% easier so just on a piece of paper on an email like just start the process of putting this stuff down. You know, that's what Kimmy says to me. It doesn't have to be like, right, I'm going to the lawyers and I'm going to work out everything. Just start the process of like, well, this is the music and I don't want it to be religious and I want to be cremated and I don't want that person there, by the way. <laughs> like, like all these little things. So just start it. But by God, you know, it's hard. No one's saying it's easy, but isn't that worth it if you love those people? Is a legacy something that's important to you as in how you'd like to be remembered? Oh, that's a good question. Um, legacy isn't important to me, but how I live at the moment is important to me. So I'm not too fast after I'm gone. Like people will think what they think, won't they? And and you can try all you like to be like, well, I'm a, I was a good person, look. But they might think, well, she was very rude to me one time. So I don't care that she says she was a good person. Um, <laughs> but what's important to me is living now usefully. And as very common with people who've lost someone young, I don't trust the clock in the way that other people do. So I don't feel like, oh, I've got loads of time. You know, he died at 44. So, you know, there's definitely that like, get stuff done, get it moving. Don't sit on ideas. Like if you got them, get on with them. And um, sometimes that can cause trouble because I'm so exhausted from <laughs> doing things that I should have maybe just said, maybe not have agreed to all of the things. And I am getting better at that. Um, saying no. Yeah, saying no occasionally. But um but yeah, I, I, that's what matters to me is to live as best I can while I'm here and do the best I can here. And I feel like my dad, as much as he, he was quite a character and he was quite a difficult, mad person, um, but he really did live. He really like did get as much out of life as was humanly possible. And that doesn't mean that when he died, we all went, oh, well, never mind, because he, he lived so well. But I did learn a lesson of like life is for living. Don't expect it to come and knock at the door, basically. Go out there and do the things you want to do. Just before we finish, one last question, Carrie Ed. How has it been for you being on the Marie Curie couch today? Oh, it's been so nice. It's been so nice because I talk a lot about grief and death and people get me on the shows to talk about grief and death. But then they, you know what, Jason, they don't always want to talk about grief and death. They want like the nice version of it mm. where you don't really go into it. Where you sort of say, oh, you're fine. Don't worry. Look at me. My dad died and I'm fine. So it's been actually very nice to talk about it properly I think that's what a lot of people are just you know they think they're talking about it but they're not actually talking about the realities of death what it actually means to honestly say yeah I saw someone die and this is how it felt because so many of us have been through that and so then we feel alone because we feel like well no one really wants to hear actually what happened they just want to hear I'm fine so yeah it's been very nice to not have to pretend that everything's fine <laughs> just be like this is what it looks like guys well, Carrie Adeloid, thank you for joining me on the Marie Curie Couch. Thank you for sharing a bit of Peter's story. And it's been an absolute joy to meet you. Oh, thank you so much. It's been really lovely. Thank you. So that's all for this episode of On the Marie Curie Couch. We hope it's got you thinking about matters of life and death and perhaps starting those conversations with your own friends and family. Marie Curie's here to help. From planning ahead to coping with bereavement, you can talk through any concerns you have around the end of life with our support line team, which also includes specially trained nurses. Call us on 0800 090 
2309 or search Marie Curie online. This podcast is produced and edited by Marie Curie with support from Ultimate Sound and Vision. The music featured is Time Lapse by Pan Oceanic. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please do like and subscribe. Thanks for listening. And until next time, goodbye.